0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Voorhees IP VIP podcast. My name is Jeremy Harrison and I will be your host for this episode. Today we're speaking with Mary Ellen Feary-Hank, who is of counsel in the Pittsburgh office of Voorhees, Seder, Seymour, and Pease. Mary Ellen and I will be discussing intellectual property due diligence, and Mary Ellen will address topics such as the importance of involving IP counsel in due diligence, handling trade secrets and legal opinions in due diligence, and general advice to companies that want to make an IP portfolio more appealing to potential purchasers or investors. Our discussion will be particularly appealing to companies or entities looking to merge with or buy a company or an IP portfolio. And now here's my conversation with Mary Ellen. Today we're speaking with Mary Ellen Fury-Hank, who is a member of the Technology and Intellectual Property Group and of Council in the Pittsburgh and Washington, D.C. offices of Ory, Sater, Seymour, and Pease. Mary Ellen advises clients on a variety of IP strategy development implementation issues, including IP portfolio licenses, acquisitions and divestitures, patent prosecution, interparties reviews, re exams or reissues, patent invalidity, and non infringement opinions. Clients routinely seek Mary Ellen's advice in the pharmaceutical, specialty chemical, and biological recycling, catalyst and animal repellent fields, among other fields. Mary Ellen also serves as an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School and teaches a master's of law course entitled Technology, Law, and IP for Non Lawyers. Mary Ellen received her Bachelor's of Science in Chemical Engineering from the University of Pennsylvania and her JD from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Mary Ellen, welcome to the podcast.
1: Happy to be here, Jeremy.
0: Today we're going to talk about intellectual property due diligence as it concerns acquisitions and mergers and this discussion. I assume will be applicable primarily to companies or entities looking to merge with or buy a company or an IP portfolio. And with that, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. So, our, my first question I have for you, Ellen, is when should you involve IP counsel in due diligence? And maybe, kind of, for those that may be somewhat unfamiliar with IP, can you give us a brief overview of what IP assets we should be
1: looking at? Sure. So, IP assets typically are patents, patent applications, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets. Anything that kind of falls generally within that area. I typically tell people that if you are in an acquisition that has really any valuation based on intellectual property, you pretty much want to have an IP counsel engaged from the beginning. Now, sometimes it doesn't happen that people engage us from the very beginning and we can react and, and handle that. But it really is beneficial to have you know, IP counsel uh, from the get-go to just make sure that those assets are transferred smoothly and you get what you think you're getting.
0: Right. So most people know lawyers are not, not cheap. <laughs> they do have billable rates. So what's the consequence of not involving IP counsel or not having competent IP counsel? What could you be risking as a company?
1: Right. Well, there was actually something in the news a while ago about an acquisition that I was not involved in, but an acquisition by Volvo of, I think it was an entity, a Rolls-Royce entity. And Volvo thought that they were acquiring the trademark rights to sell cars under the Rolls-Royce name. However, they didn't realize and did the deal. And what the license for the Rolls-Royce trademark said was if the deal happened, the Rolls Royce trademark rights went away automatically. So, you know, this was a very expensive mistake. Volvo thought that they were going to be able to sell cars under the Rolls Royce name and, and couldn't. Um, and I, I don't, you know, know who represented either side, but I know that, you know, that was sort of a nightmare scenario because the parties did not expect that to happen at the end of the deal and had to be, you know, hopefully corrected, but I'm sure with at great cost.
0: Yeah. So it's, uh, Better to be safe than sorry, if you will. And uh, yes, attorneys do cost money, but in cases like that, which could be unique, it's definitely worth the money and definitely worth abating the risk. Moving on, so if, if you're an entity that wants to acquire intellectual property, how do you recommend proceeding with IP due diligence?
1: Right. So um, again, you know, if you know that IP is going to be part of what you are acquiring, you're going to want to engage IP counsel. They're going to immediately give you an IP checklist of things that you want to see, a list of questions that you'll give to the other side saying, you know, all these things that you'd like to see. What'll happen is there'll be typically a data room. In the past, it was a physical data room. Most of the time now it's an electronic data room where documents that answer the questions are posted. And, you know, they'll be looked at by both sides. There might be follow-up questions about them. Typically there are. But also you're probably going to be thinking about, gee, you know, what kind of field am I in? You know, say for instance, you're in the pharmaceutical field, you're going to want to probably have some pharmaceutical technical experts also engaged either within your own company or outside experts who you've engaged through counsel to, you know, be able to call on them with technical questions Mm -hmm. with regard to what you're acquiring.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've been in those scenarios when we had the paper data rooms that was... uh it can be a madhouse, it can be a circus, especially when there's multiple law firms represented, a lot yes. of people. Yes. But I, I, I agree. <laughs> I, think, I think technical experts, I think that's key. The acquiring entity needs to understand exactly what the tech is, but not only that, but you want to know what you're getting. So somebody to, to kick the tires, if you will, and somebody that can, that can uh, talk the talk. Right. So let's change gears to the other side. As the company being acquired or, or the IP portfolio being acquired, how can you be ready?
1: Yeah. And I think this is a really good question because this is something that you're going to want to have set up from the get-go. If you ever think you might be in a position where you would be acquired or have part of your portfolio be acquired, you're going to want IP counsel involved in really any instance where IP is involved, like, you know, patent applications, trademark applications, setting up trade secret policies, going through and, you know, are there copyright issues? And then also things that have to do with your employees. I mean, what are your employee agreements saying? Are there non-competes? Are there confidentiality provisions? What about agreements with third parties keeping things secret? So there's a lot that you want set up from the get-go so that the IP assets don't inadvertently go away from you. And sort of, if you have a good IP program, that's going to go a long way to being ready for that due diligence checklist from the acquirer.
0: Right. Yeah. Each of those things will make your portfolio more appealing. How about quantity or the size of an IP portfolio um, when you compare it against the quality? Is that something that makes makes an IP portfolio more appealing?
1: You know, it really depends um, on what the acquirer is looking for. I would say most of the time there's going to be, you know, somewhat of a targeted. We know we need this particular part of the IP that's really, really important, either for current products or um, research development that you see coming down the pipeline. But that said, I mean, I, I have seen and been involved with IP auctions where. A company that had a mammoth IP portfolio decided to auction off portions of it and was very lucrative because they were able to divide up into reasonable portions for mm-hmm. different acquirers. So it really depends on what your exit strategy is.
0: Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I think a large portfolio, a lot of, a lot of times makes sense when you want to cross license and work with other, other companies, but IP portfolio may be a different question. Um, so case by case how about trade secrets? This is an interesting aspect of the IP portfolio. How how should trade secrets of a company be addressed in due diligence?
1: Right. This is really, really critical because trade secrets only are valuable if they are secret. So you certainly do not want to be in a situation where you are inadvertently disclosing trade secrets um, so that they become public. And that can definitely happen inadvertently in this kind of a scenario. So typically what we'll do is will say, yes, there are trade secrets that are involved. And what the companies will agree is, okay, we're going to designate certain people who are going to enter into certain very restrictive agreements about non-compete and confidentiality that are going to be able to see the trade secrets so that that trade secret is preserved. And that way, if the deal falls through, the, you know the trade secret is still there and still owned by the original company. But also another way that some companies say is, yes, we, we know we have a lot of trade secrets. They're really in the minds of these key employees. Here are the key employees. Make sure you kind of get them included in the agreement and have them buttoned up as, you know, to transition into the new entity or you know the merged company, however you're doing it, so that they are retained and that you're able to sort of pick their brains after the closing of the deal. But you don't inadvertently want to give away your secrets.
0: Right, right. So we're looking at non-competition or sorry, confidentiality, possibly non-competition requirements. What is a a common way that the trade secret could be disclosed in, in these proceedings? Do you, do you have an example you give us?
1: Well, sometimes you'll end up with someone who's who you know, is very excited to, to do the deal and they you know want to let you know that, well, in addition to what they have patented or have pending in the patent applications that you've seen, they have all this other greatest thing that they want to tell you about. And you really want to be very careful to control that person and make sure that that um, situation, they're only talking to the people who are in that agreement right. with the company to make sure that it's not an inadvertent disclosure and therefore, no longer secret. and the value that you derive from your trade secret then um, goes away. goes away. <laughs> real fast. Yeah.
0: Good advice. Another aspect of IP portfolios are opinions, legal opinions that are drafted by by counsel. how How should patent opinions? we're talking freedom to operate in validity, et cetera. How should those be addressed during the due diligence proceedings?
1: Right. This is a big deal because opinions are privileged documents. Um, and we're really talking about written opinions here. And the idea is, is that you would get an opinion from counsel and it would be addressed to a specific entity. And that would be considered privileged. It would not be discoverable in litigation generally unless you decided to offer it in the situation where maybe you were trying to combat a, a, um, a determination of willfulness. So you don't want to lose that privilege. Um, so typically what I'll say to you if I'm representing the company being acquired, I'll say, do not put any opinions in any data room. If they have a question about opinions, you can answer, you know, yes, we have opinions or no, we have opinions, but we're not giving them to the other entity because you're not in privity with that other entity if I'm representing the acquirer, I might have some general factual questions. Did you do any searching? Have you rendered any opinions? But I don't want to know the details. I don't want to break that privilege because if the deal goes through and I am now in privity with that opinion, I may want to use it or I might not. And I want to keep that decision. And it's my privilege to keep or not, depending on the scenario I'm in.
0: Yeah. So you're looking, you want to maintain privilege because it's mutually beneficial in the Correct. event that you actually acquire this portfolio, this uh, IP. So you want to maintain that privilege. Correct. Okay. How, how about IP searching uh, when it comes to searching for patentability, non-infringement and invalidity of, of intellectual property? Should the acquirer do their own searching?
1: Typically, I recommend that um, IP searching is done either in-house at the acquirer's IP department, but more likely, you know, the outside counsel will either do it or have a third-party search firm do patentability or non-infringement invalidity for the key pieces of the IP portfolio. But that said, you know, sometimes there's a time restriction. Sometimes there's a money restriction, um, and sometimes the deal just doesn't, um, isn't big enough to support spending that kind of money, but in an ideal situation, it'd be great because then you know what you know as much as possible of what you're walking into.
0: Right. It's kind of like I mean, I would I would make it similar to buying a car. You wanna you wanna make sure you know you know what kind of gas mileage it gets. You know if it, the car is used. You know the, its history and things like that. I think right. that's a pretty smart idea to do your own IP searching to make sure you know what you're getting. Right. Uh, beforehand.
1: And it doesn't always happen, but if you can, I think it's a good idea.
0: Yeah. All right. How about um, some pitfalls? What are the most common pitfalls you see when IP is acquired?
1: I think probably the one we see the most is the 11th hour, the, you know, maybe 24 hours before the deal is closing. Oh my gosh, we probably should have IP council look at this. Um, we'll do what we can, obviously. Uh, if you call us at the 11th hour, we're not gonna say we can't help you, but it'll be limited by time. Um, that said, you know if you were able to come to us even you know at the 10th hour instead of the 11th hour, there's more that we could look at and we could you know give you a better handle of maybe the, the issues that you might come across. So I think that's probably the, the biggest one. The other thing is not necessarily appreciating the gravity of potential issues. Um, sometimes people just say, yeah, okay, that's a potential issue and gloss over it, but the potential issue, can become a really big issue, you know, in the future. And and deal fever is a real thing. Sometimes people say, you yeah, know, I've got this cash burning in my pocket and we're going to do this deal. And if that happens, you know, we can try to address as much as possible with representations and warranties. But of course, if you don't have to rely on representations and warranties, if you can button up any issues that you see before that, that, that is always a better situation to be in.
0: So being over anxious. Or being anxious is good, but over-anxious may, may catch you in the end. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, good. So let's say that the, the deal ends up closing. How do you address IP issues that, that arise after you close the deal?
1: Right. And, and this is going to happen. Um, if you have IP assets, they are not static. And um, you'll probably have some patent applications, at the very least, ongoing. So you're going to want to have clauses in there. We typically call them the further assurances clauses, where... You agree that the acquired party will help you out in good faith. You know, they'll sign what you need signed and they will provide what you need provided assignments, oaths, these kinds of things. But also you're going to try and get some general blanket assignments that are signed that would cover as best you can IP that you know about. Now, this may not help you in every foreign country, but it'll help you a long, you know, a long way to say, look, you know, we, this was meant to be in part of the deal. And, you know, here's our blanket assignment that, you know, now puts it in the new company's name. Um, and it can help you uh, an awful lot, but then you can go back to the furthers, further assurances and say, look, you know, in this particular country, we need you to sign a new oath. And, and they'll be obligated to do that as well.
0: Right. So there are means to get around some of those issues that arise afterwards. So all's not said and done when you put the last dot and cross your last T, I assume. Right. Well, good. All right. Well, we're coming about to the end of our of our discussion here, uh, Mary Ellen. And I, I think that what I've learned throughout this is that it's good to engage IP counsel earlier than later. And it, it, even though it does cost money, it's, it's worth the money to be able to uh, avoid risks and pitfalls. Is there any you know, last, last advice you want to give before we close this podcast?
1: I think you said it, Jeremy, you know, the earlier you can engage IP counsel, if there's any IP that's adding to the value of the deal, I think you will get your money's worth in terms of knowing and having peace of mind of what you're acquiring. For sure.
0: All right. Well, marion thanks for your time. I appreciate you uh, giving us your words of wisdom and, uh, definitely, you definitely have the experience to back it up. I appreciate uh, all the information that I've been given well, and, thanks. um, we hope to have you on again at a, at a future date.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: All right. This has been an episode of the Voorhees IP VIP podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to speak to either myself or any of the guests, please feel free to reach out to us. You can contact us through Vore's website or via the Voorhees intellectual property updates webpage on LinkedIn. If you have a suggestion for a podcast topic or would like to recommend a particular guest, we'd love to hear from you. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I hope you can join us next time.